podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Questo suono dal Sud America fino giù in Senegal, profumo d'Africa nella Nuova Guinea. La sentirai in Albania, che assomiglia a casa mia. Riparte dal Belgio, arriva in Croazia, Slovacchia, Polonia e Romania. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Worldwide Series. This is a series all about our fans. I'm convinced that we have the best fans in the world, so I wanted to give our fans all over the world a platform where they can speak their minds, and this way you, the listeners, can hear some opinions and viewpoints that are different from my own. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We're coming back to Canada for this episode. We have two guests for today's episode. The first is the president of the Napoli Club Toronto, Carmine, welcome to Forza Napoli. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. I've been listening to the show for a while, so it's a pleasure to really be on here and speak to you today. Well, it's always my pleasure. and We've been chatting for a while. I I love what you guys have been doing with the club, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, let me introduce our second guest, who's the vice president of the Napoli Club Toronto, Sereno. Welcome to Forza Napoli. Thanks for having me, Joe. I really uh, appreciate it. And uh, like Carm, I've been listening to the podcast for quite a while now, and I'm glad to be on it. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. It's going to be fun. Of course, I want to talk about the Napoli Club Toronto and everything that you guys are doing, which has been fantastic for the city that we all live in. And I also want to get your thoughts on Italy's performance in the group stage of the Euros, because I'm sure you guys have been watching and maybe doing a little bit of partying with your buddy Danny. But before we get to that, I definitely want to hear your stories first. I'll start with you, Carm. How did you become an Napoli fan? Well, I believe I go for most of the fan base, at least like 80 to 90% of the fan base, by saying it's just a natural thing for me. My family is from Provincia di Caserta, near Napoli, as, we all, as uh, people know. So it's about 20 minutes outside the city, if you don't know. And yeah, it was just a natural progression, just constantly being surrounded by family members, cousins who just supported the team every Sunday, even when I wasn't actively involved in watching the team. Every Sunday, I would walk downstairs in the morning and just see my dad on the couch watching the game. And then over time, you know, you start picking up on things when family and friends start talking about the games. And then, you know, some of your friends at school are getting into the sport and watching Serie A. And you'll have friends that are Milan fans, Inter fans, Juve fans. And I'm looking around. I'm like, well, I feel like I'm the only one who is the Napoli fan here because that's all that I was brought up around. And actually, before I became a Napoli fan... For like a year or two, when I didn't know any better, I was actually a Milan fan (laughs) because of Pirlo. And then, you know, I came to my senses and then I started to switch over onto the Napoli side. And it wasn't until, I believe it was 2008 or 2009. I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, It wasn't until I actually went to the San Paolo that really solidified my roots in being a Napoli fan, if you will. Before that point, like I said, I was watching on and off. I didn't really understand much of what was going on. But then actually getting to the San Paolo, now the Maradona, experiencing it, watching that team, even though we weren't good at the time, I thought this is the best team in the world because of the experience that I had in that stadium, in that city. And ever since that point, it's just been an ever-growing, I guess you can call it, love for the team or a passion for the team that just hasn't stopped since. That's your traditional start with the family and go from there. But I find that's pretty common as well with a lot of our fan base, especially because we had this period where we were had to fight our way back up to Serie A, where I think the natural thing to do is to still have a team that you cheer for in Serie A. And it's not a huge shock that it would be Milan because that was a very successful team over the years. But I've seen it across the board. Not too many Napoli fans ever cheered for Juve, obviously, but Inter, there's a lot of that, a lot of Milan. And that's a pretty similar story to mine, although I'm a bit older than you guys. Sereno, how about you? How did you become a Napoli fan? Very similar to what Carmen just explained, but for me, it was uh, my dad. He grew up in Provincia di Napoli, which uh, is Castellamare di Stabia. He actually grew up with a lot of players that ended up coming from uh, Castellamare di Stabia. He was good friends with Quagliarella, good friends with Yezzo. So yeah, like uh, growing up, I don't want to say the word brainwashed, but uh, I was brainwashed into becoming a Napoli fan. 
But since little, I'll be totally honest, the only team that I ever knew was was Napoli. If you ever meet my dad, there's not a time that you that he's not wearing something that has like the N on it, like either a shirt, a hat, freaking his his underwear. Like I don't know, he he's always has something Napoli. So <laughs> since I was little, he he always told me, "Today you have to play for Napoli." But you know, poor guy, I didn't know playing for anybody, but. He always tried to get me like brainwashed into okay, one day you're gonna look, you, you gotta play, you gotta play like Maradona. I used to see videos of Maradona. In those times, Napoli was obviously not in a great place. We never really caught many games. We used to watch games on Telecapri, which was like a streaming service where you didn't actually watch the games. You watched people watch the games, and then you know if Napoli would score, you'd run to Ryan. You'd see uh, you know the squilla di tromba, and then watch Napoli <laughs> score after. <laughs> So yeah, that was my experience growing up as an Apple fan. And then obviously, like similar to Cadmia, that the event that kind of solidifies you as a, as an Apple fan is is when you go to the stadium and and you watch a game. And it's honestly, I, I've been to a lot of sporting events. That there's nothing that compares to the environment of that stadium when when Napoli is playing. I've yet to see a Champions League game, but. That's definitely something I got to take off the bucket list. Can't take it off this season, but hopefully we can take it off next season. But yeah, that's basically how I got into it. And I'm sure that's probably how my kids are probably going to get into it too. I'm sure they'll be brainwashed as well, <laughs> either by me or by their, by their grandfather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they don't, they don't really get a choice until they're much older. And then hopefully by then they don't want to choose anyone else. That's kind of the, <laughs> the strategy, right? Well, I don't think they'll be allowed to choose anyone else if they want to like live in their house set. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I wonder if we'll ever get back. You both mentioned going to the San Paulo. I wonder if we'll ever get back to that type of environment, obviously with COVID and everything. I hope so, because I never had that experience. So I needed to get back to that point so I can uh, experience what you guys did. And that's not something that's unique to people that have relatives from Napoli or close to Napoli obviously that's more common because that's naturally who you're going to cheer for. But some of the, the other guests that we've spoken to on this series are not Italian at all, but they went to the city or they went to the stadium, which obviously means you're in the city and fell in love with the club that way. I've got a long list of people I need to speak to. And, and there's so many stories. Oh, I went on my honeymoon there and I fell in love with the city or I, I was there on work and I fell in love with the city. There's something about that place that draws people in. So it's not not terribly shocking to me that once you got there, you guys were hooked. You guys then took your fandom to another level and you started your own club, which is, I must say, because you guys are, again, you probably don't like hearing this from you know other people to be called the younger guys. But for me, you know, you guys are relatively young. And so that's that's a pretty impressive thing and something that you guys should be really, really proud of. So Karm, why don't you tell me how this idea even came about, first of all, to form a Anopoly Club Toronto? For sure. And you know what? When you say that we are the younger guys, we don't take that as a negative. We actually see that as a positive. Being able to take uh, a newer mindset into a generation of fan clubs within the city or the country or even the continent, for that matter, giving a new look onto how a club should run in this new era, you know, this new digital era. I think that being young for multiple reasons is good, but, you know, we don't have the experience. We just we just build along with that experience. But having said that, how did this idea come? Well, going back to what I said before, becoming an Apple fan, there was always the experience where I felt that I was the only one. And that experience growing up in a city where there's tons of Juve fans, Inter fans, Milan fans joining together, I felt like it was just me, my dad, my uncle in this city who could get together and watch games. And it was like that since when I started becoming a fan, like 2008, 2009. And it wasn't for the... U.S. tour in 2019, when Napoli went to Miami and Michigan, that it really opened my eyes, especially the Michigan game. I never got the chance to go to the Miami game. I wanted to go to the Miami game because a lot of the big names uh, on Napoli Twitter were there, like uh, Jerry Fanfil, Napoli Dando, the Parkman Vesuvius cast was there as well. They also were in Michigan. But um, going to the Michigan game, going with that same mindset, you know, Who's going to be there? I'm going to be like one of the only Napoli fans there. It's mostly going to be Barcelona. You know, they're a worldwide team. Even if people don't really like 
watching football, they'll watch Barcelona because of Messi sort of deal. But to my surprise, when I walk into Ann Arbor, when I'm walking through the streets of Ann Arbor, going to downtown, I start seeing blue jerseys pop up here and there. Every once in a while, I saw another blue jersey pop up. And then I saw groups of blue jerseys pop up. And then I saw like crowds starting to pop up together. And I'm starting to think, wow, I'm really not the only one here. So we got into a crowd that we met in the middle of Ann Arbor. We started talking to them, a group of Napoli fans. And we start to ask, where you guys are from? Well, we're from Mississauga. What? <laughs> yeah, we're from Mississauga. Where are you guys from? Oh, we're from Richmond Hill. We're from Brampton. We're from Toronto. We're from Oakville. And then it started to piece together that there is really a large contingency in the GTA that is full of Napoli fans. There's so much potential there, but yet nothing has come to fruition yet. There has not been a single Napoli club to be formed. There has been in the past. My dad told me about ones in the, in the 70s and 80s that formed on College Street in St. Clair. But ever since then, looking around, I'm talking to my dad about it, he's like, yeah, there's really, there's no representation. There hasn't been anything. And from that moment on, going to the Michigan match and talking to the Lord knows how many Ontarians that drove four or five hours to go watch this match in, in Ann Arbor and just being online in the Twitter community, the Napa Twitter community, which honestly has just been a great experience in itself. That idea started to form in my head that maybe, you know what, we should. We should start getting something together. We should put something together and really start to gather and draw in all these Napoli fans in the GTA and abroad to one centralized club that we could all experience together. No, that's amazing. For those that in other parts of the world, those are all places that you mentioned that are in the what we call the greater Toronto area, which is, let's call it a, a one hour radius sort of around Toronto proper. And yeah, it's cool. You guys have a WhatsApp group that's growing, right? The the list of people that are in there, it's 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 pretty uh, fired during a game, that's for sure. It's hard to keep up with all the messages, uh, but it's a, a sign of, of the growing popularity in it. It's good. I think you guys have brought that community together. And I'm sure just like when you went to the States and, and started finding other Napoli fans that are from the same place that you're from and didn't know it. Obviously, they were in the same boat. Sereno, is that how you found Carm? Or did you guys have a friendship before and, and that evolved to uh, forming the club? Well, before Michigan, I didn't really know Carvina. So no, we didn't have a relationship before that trip. But me and my family drove down to uh, Ann Arbor to watch the game as well. I, I knew a few people from the GTA that were Napoli fans. I've always had a, the idea of like a Napoli club in the back of my head. I was on the fence about maybe trying to get some people together to maybe, you know, rent a bus and to drive over to Ann Arbor. But I honestly didn't know that there was really the demand for it. And then similar to Carvina, when I went over, we sat in the Napoli section. I, I'm pretty sure me and Carvina sat one section over from each other, but we never ended up meeting. It was like so close to where I was, but that trip, we never crossed paths. But yeah, I believe after the Michigan trip, Danny actually, who is part of the Napoli club as well, Danny tweeted out if there you know, was any Napoli fans in the GTA that would want to start a Napoli club. And another big member of the Napoli Twitter community, uh, Zuri Fanfil, I believe quoted the tweet and tagged Karine and myself and saying, these two guys are from Toronto, talk to them and, and start, you know, get it going. And then after that tweet was sent out, that's when Karine kind of reached out to me and was like, okay, do you want to actually do this? And I'm like, hell yeah, let's, let's do it. And then the power of social media, you know, you used to talk about us being younger which to some people could be maybe a disadvantage, but I see it as an advantage because, you know, through the avenues of social media, we've able to harvest this community of fans that we didn't really know were there. So that's the plus side of social media, I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. So Phil gets all the credit for founding. <laughs> the Philly guy gets the credit for founding Napoli Club Toronto. One more person should get the credit, too, because I forgot to mention in my story, far from Vesuvius, it was Marco D'Onofrio, who is a Toronto boy himself. And it was at the game when I talked to his cousin. That's the first group of people that we met in the city was Marco's cousin, who is a part of our club now, too. And he got in contact with Marco at the stadium, and we talked to each other a bit about it. And 
I talked to Marco about it there as well. I was like, there's a bunch of people here. Why don't we have a club? And that idea started flowing with Marco. And then that tweet came out. And then a jury fan, Phil and Danny, uh, started talking about it. And then Marco came in. And then Sereno and I were the last piece of that puzzle. That was that one missing link. I forgot w- what it was. But now that Sereno was retelling the story, it just clicked back. And I just want to give another shout out to uh, Marco. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad to see that the Far From Vesuvius boys have reunited and, and they'll be doing their shows together again. They're on and off a little bit, but it's good to see Ken and Marco and, and Rafa back on. And actually, Carm, you were on, the I guess it was The Rant, and one of your, I guess, first appearances. And, and you had a picture with, I guess, with Rafa. Or Rafa was in the background. And it's similar to how Sereno was saying, like, you guys are probably a section over from each other and, and didn't know it. It's kind of a small world that someone that we now all interact with pretty regularly or only a couple seats away from Rafa there. Sereno, you mentioned Danny. We're going to try to bring Danny and and Gianluca on the pod at some point. We'll do a part two because they both have unique stories. They're the the other part of the the staff, would you call it, of the club where you guys all work together on promoting the club, running the social media. And you're absolutely right about the benefits of, of being younger. I mean, not too many older clubs would if you could call it that would have tiktok pages and instagram and all of these things so definitely keep up the good work for any listeners that are in toronto be sure to reach out and look into joining the club obviously we're all hoping for covid to end for for those who don't know we've been in lockdown for about 15 years in toronto so we're hoping it's going to end soon and then uh, we can have a a toronto meetup maybe in advance of a, a bigger Napoli Twitter meetup somewhere in the US or at the San Paolo. If you need to connect with these guys, just shoot me a DM and, and I'll put you in touch. So like I said at the top, I, I do want to talk to you guys and get your thoughts on Italy's play in the group stage. I, I know you've been watching. We won all three games without conceding a goal, which is the first time that's ever happened in this tournament. We're recording this on Tuesday, so a few teams have still to play, but Carm. Has Italy been the most impressive side of the tournament for you? By far. By far the most impressive side. Don't get me wrong. There's been other really solid sides that I've seen play in this tournament. Of course, France is going to be one of the top teams. Germany, who I didn't expect to do so well in this tournament, considering their group and considering how their team has been set up. But they're playing fantastic football as well. But there's just something. There's just something about this Italian side that... I don't know what it is. One thing for sure that we can all definitely see is the camaraderie that that team has on and off the field. And just they're just such a tight-knit squad. And I can't remember who said it, but I remember hearing it somewhere that someone said, you know, Italy doesn't have all the superstars on their team. That's an arguable point. I think Lorenzo Insigne, Jorginho, and so on are superstar, world-class quality players. But they said that the group is the superstar of that team. And I couldn't agree more with that. The way Mancini has turned this team on its head from 2018 until now, where you can see from 2018, even before that, there was still some uneasiness. There was still some fragmentation that you can see uh, within the squad. And Mancini just took that and just flipped it on its head. These guys are all very, very supportive of each other. And not only that, off the field, they're supportive of each other, and that translates to on the field, where they got to know each other even more, that it really helps with their style of play. And not to mention that their style of play also has been completely revamped. You know, we're used to seeing the, the Catanacho style of football, you know, the 4-4-2, drop back, hit them on a counter sort of deal. Win games one nothing, and good night. We'll just hold that lead for the rest of the 90 minutes. But... Being able to see this team and the talent that this team has from back to front is just solid all around. I know there's some people saying that the weaknesses may be on the back line where we have Bonucci and Chiellini. Older center backs may not be able to handle the pace of younger teams like Germany and France. But they're both experienced center backs and they both played with each other for a while They know their weaknesses and they balance each other out when they're on that back line. So even though we may have weaknesses, we have the experience and the technical play from the midfield and onwards to compensate for those weaknesses. So 
just the way the team is playing as a whole from back to front. I feel like we are the strongest team in this tournament and we could make a, a serious run to the finals, if not winning the tournament. Yeah, that's very well said. And it, you mentioned Catanacho and it's funny because we're all uh, collectively kind of ripping on England for winning their group with only two goals scored. But that's kind of like they're playing Catanacho in a way, although I think they just really struggled to score, which is funny. But I agree. I, I think we have been the best team. Only two other countries have won all three of their matches or, or have the potential to win all three of their matches. Again, we're recording on Tuesday, so a couple of groups still have to play. Belgium did it in Group B. For me, they were the second best team, I would say, out of any team in the group stage. They finished with nine points, but the reason is because they had that one half against Denmark where they were completely dominated. And granted, that was the first game after the Christian Eriksen incident, so you can't be more motivated than Denmark was for that match. And Belgium showed a lot of resolve in how they responded in coming back to win that match. Netherlands is the other team to have collected all nine points. But again, like Belgium, they showed their vulnerability a little bit, especially in their first match against the Ukraine, where they went up 2-0 and then conceded two goals and and ended up winning that match 3-2. Now, you don't necessarily need all nine points to be the best team, right? I mean, particularly when you look at Group F, obviously because of the teams that are in that group, it's not as easy to win all three games. And that's one of the criticisms that you've heard from a lot of pundits on the Italian team that, you know, we haven't had the strongest competition yet. So we'll we'll have to wait and see how that goes. I mean, you can only play the teams that you're scheduled to play against, so it's hard to judge. France is probably still the favorite. I mean, if you check the books, they are the favorite to win the whole tournament, but they also dropped points to the weakest team in that group, drawing Hungary. Meanwhile, Germany lost to France and Portugal lost to Germany. So it's hard to tell like how good are these teams really. Italy are the only team that have actually dominated all three of their matches from start to finish. And our opponents hardly got a sight of the goal in those matches. Switzerland basically had one clear-cut chance, which Donnarumma stopped. And Wales had one clear-cut chance, which Gareth Bale squandered. And that's about it. We've now gone 30 matches without a loss, which ties a record that was set in 1939 or something like that. We've won 11 consecutive matches, and we didn't concede a goal in any of them. In fact, we haven't conceded a goal in 1,100 minutes, and even over that 30-game stretch, we only conceded 7 goals, which on average is less than a quarter of a goal a match, which is just ridiculous. For the Wales game, Mancini made eight changes to the squad that beat Switzerland, and we still managed to get a win. I think that's pretty important. Carmi mentioned sort of the team unity and the camaraderie that these guys have. We see how they celebrate when a player scores a goal, especially that Piscina goal, where it's a guy that's barely got into the squad and only got there because of an injury, and he's scoring on the big stage, and the players couldn't have been happier for him. Unfortunately, the only player that hasn't featured out of the entire squad is our keeper in Alex Medet, but obviously it's harder to get the third string keeper into a game. To me, it's that's also important that Mancini has used all these guys, not just for the camaraderie, but also for their form, right? If, you know, God forbid somebody does get hurt in one of these upcoming matches, we have a pretty good sense of the quality on this team. And, and as far as we can tell, I mean, they played the same system and everyone seemed to still do pretty well, not as good as as the teams we saw in the first two matches. What's interesting is you can argue that we would have been better off losing the match to Wales, at least on paper, second in the group has an easier run to the final than the winner of the group. We already know that we're going to play Austria in the round of 16. If we win that match and assuming the favorites win their matches, that would mean we play against Belgium in the quarterfinals and then France in the semifinals. Meanwhile, had we finished second in the group, we would likely play Netherlands in the quarterfinals and then the semifinals would likely be against the winner of England and whoever finishes in second in Group F, which seems like it's going to be Germany, but maybe Portugal. Again, that's assuming France wins the group, which is by no means guaranteed. So, Sereno, let me ask you, would you rather win the group and arguably have a tougher path to the final or finish second in the group and arguably have an easier run to the final? That's a very tough question. (laughs) 
I feel like their first game is a fairly easy matchup against Austria. They are heavily uh, favored to win that game, so it's kind of like a good warm-up to getting into the harder games. But historically, Italy likes to make things hard for themselves. That's why these last three games in the group stage, this is probably the most calm or the most worry-free I've been in the start of any international tournament that Italy's played in because all three games they've won, all three games they've dominated effortlessly at points it's looked like so i feel like maybe we're paying for that because historically uh, italy is a team that likes to qualify on the last day of the group stage and you know make things hard for themselves so i guess now we're making things harder for ourselves in the earlier uh, knockout stage rounds but to be honest i've watched almost every game and i feel like this team hasn't played yet at their peak like i feel like we're still growing in this competition so i feel like whoever they play if they make it to a quarterfinals or semis i feel like they'll be up to par with whatever opponent they're playing uh, against i'd actually rather play stronger teams in the quarters and in the semis because then if you win those games you're already primed and ready to play a final as opposed to if you're maybe you know getting more favorable matchups leading up to a final maybe you're playing a more battle-hardened team on the other side and they might mow you over <laughs> so there's pros and cons to both at the end of the day you're going to run into a hard team once you get to the quarters and in the, in the semis and uh you know the ball is round anything can happen and i'm fairly confident in this italy team just because like carmina was saying they might not have the big big names but you can see that they play for each other and and they love each other off the field. They're loosey-goosey. They're singing, they're dancing, they're joking around. But then on the field, it's business. And you can see that they take that field and they know what their job is and they play with purpose. Every player has has a job and, and they just go on the field and they execute. So I feel like we're going to grow into this tournament and we haven't seen the best 11 for Italy yet. Like I feel like they have much more to give. No, that's well said. Karma, I have a feeling you're going to agree with this. Yeah, I'm going to go on what Sereno says here, and I completely agree. And just going back to the group stage matches, like, I know we're saying that Turkey and Wales and Switzerland, they aren't top competition to play against. But listen, Turkey was a decent side going into this tournament. They led up. I think they had one of the best defensive records in their qualifying stages. Wales in the last tournament made it to the, correct me if I'm wrong, quarters or semifinals. And Switzerland, they're not always the best team that plays, but they're a hard team to play against. And you saw it in that Italy game that when they put their mind to it, they can really give you a tough going on that field. So to say that we played weaker competition, I wouldn't say that they were weak. Yeah, they're weaker than us, but they're not weak competition at all. They're quite strong with the way they play and and the players that they have on their teams. But having said that, I feel like winning the group and going into these knockout stages where we have a tougher path to the final is probably, I think, favorable, in my opinion. And this is the reason why. We've played the first match against Austria. Austria, of course, is a decent side. Marcel Sabitzer, Arantovic... Uh, Alaba, you know, they have some pretty decent players on the team and they played well together. They had some portions of the games where they didn't impress me much at all. But if they have their day, then Austria can play pretty well. I think that's a favorable matchup for us just by the way this team plays. Like Sedano said and a bunch of other people have said, even on the rant when I was on there, this isn't your Nonos Italy. This team comes out, they take the game by the scruff of the neck. And they just dominate. They step on your neck and they don't let off until the 90 minutes are up. As soon as they lose the ball, they're right on you. Three, four guys pressing hard and eye up the field. They make you make mistakes. They make you pass back. They don't let you get into the game. And that's what I like to see about this Italy team. Not the the past, you know, Catanaccio, laissez-faire, play around. We'll get the ball when we get there. And that sort of style of play, fitting the players that we have on the pitch, I feel like... First of all, going up against any team, I feel like we can hold our own. We can definitely perform well. Uh, Just by the past 30 games and into this tournament, we can definitely perform well under any circumstance. And having the tougher path to the final, you always got to be on your ball. You always got to be on your game. And that's why I like having a tougher path. First of all, I feel like it legitimizes it more if you win the tournament because you said oh look we have to play to win the cup it feels more legitimate to play that way but at the same time you have to be 
on the ball. You have to be sharp every single game. You can't make mistakes against teams like Belgium, France, and Germany, for example. Meanwhile, if you have an easier path, we can have, this is going to sound terrible, don't crucify me for this, but the Napoli effect, where we're like, oh, we're playing Verona this week. Ah, we can take it easy. No, you can't. Because that team, the underdog, they're going to come out and they're going to play. They're going to play hard. So you can't have that mindset going out onto the pitch. Mind you, I don't think Italy has this mindset at all. Just by the way Mancini speaks in his press conferences and by the way they look on the field, they have the mindset that we're going to come out and we're going to win and there's nothing you're going to do about it. But having said that, you could always have that thing in the back of your mind where if you're going up against lesser opponents, you're probably thinking, we can take it a bit easier this match, when in reality, you can't. So that's why I think it's probably favorable that we won the group and had a harder path to the finals for uh, those few reasons. Yeah, you both made excellent points there. I, I am a little bit concerned that we might have peaked early, as Sereno was alluding to. But again, you'd, you ha- you can only play the teams that you play against. And it was nice for once to not be stressing about even getting out of the group or what the matchups would have been if we didn't top the group or, God forbid, if we finished third. I think even though we've not conceded any goals, it's been a very different approach, as you mentioned, Carm, that we've been good defensively because of how aggressive we are in the attack. The reason we haven't conceded goals is not because we've played such resolute defensive football. It's because our opponents have barely touched the ball. And if they don't have the ball, then it's a lot harder for them to score. And I agree with you guys. And I'll give you a couple more reasons why I was happy to win all three. First of all, again, we're recording this on Tuesday, so we don't know for sure who we would be playing further down the road. Obviously, we know that if Belgium wins their match, then we would play Belgium in the quarterfinals, but Group F is totally up for grabs. I think France is the best team in that group, but that doesn't mean that France are going to finish top of that group. They have to play against Portugal in their final match, and Germany has Hungary, so there's a possibility there that Germany tops the group. And personally, I would rather not to get too far ahead of ourselves. Obviously, we've got to go one game at a time. But if we get to the semifinals, I personally would rather play against Germany than France. I think even if you look at the quarterfinals, yeah, going into this tournament, Belgium was one of the favorites. And a lot of people were kind of writing off Netherlands because they're playing with the three-man back line. But they've actually looked really good. And I think Netherlands might be able to surprise some people. So I'm not even convinced that Netherlands is necessarily the easier quarterfinal than Belgium is. Maybe they're pretty similar. And really at the end of the day, and you guys both noted that you have to beat some good teams to win this cup. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, maybe we might have one more difficult match than if we were on the other side of the bracket. And again, that's I'm not even certain about that. But you have to eventually beat some good teams if you're going to win this thing. So I'd rather go into the knockout stage with that momentum and that confidence of having won all of our matches, having the best goal differential of any team. I think very few teams have actually scored more goals than us. I think Netherlands might be the only team that has scored. I think they've scored eight goals and Belgium has also scored seven. Other than that, the only teams that could score as many goals as us would be Germany or Portugal. I think Portugal has five and they play against France, so that might be unlikely. Germany has four, but they play against Hungary, so they could easily score three or four goals in that match. But we're in a good spot. I do want to maintain that momentum, that team spirit that you guys alluded to. So let's talk about some individual players. Carm, if you had to pick, and and this is a, a tough one as well, especially because of the rotation that we saw in the third match. But if you had to pick one player to say that was our best player in the group stage, who would you pick? By far, Jorginho. Like, not even without a question. Jorginho has been our best player. The thing that I like about Jorginho is that he's the quiet player. If you don't pay attention to what he's doing specifically in the match, you can easily overlook him. But if you take Jorginho out of the equation, that team plays completely different. And that's what I love about him the most. And the stats that he's been putting up have been unreal his passing percentage is i think in the low to mid 90s and that's including all passes short medium long passes just the thought of that itself is absurd i don't think there's very few players that are matching him right now in terms of passing his positional play is also just phenomenal he can read the space just so well and he creates space for those around him is just it's quite honestly 
so refreshing to see a player who plays that classic regista role the way it's supposed to be played. I haven't seen anyone really do it since like Pirlo played with Italy. So sorry to interrupt. Isn't there a guy in England that plays? Uh, that's the next Pirlo I heard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the next it was Pirlo, Gattuso, and Kaka all in yeah. one player. Yorkshire, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> just having Jorginho, who just. You can just see it. He's calm on the ball. He's confident in his ability. And his footballing IQ and the way he reads the spaces, the way he reads the defense, to me is without that in the squad, it's very difficult to play the way Italy wants to play in that buildup in the attack where you need that player who's comfortable, calm, and can create. That's why he's called the regista. He's the director. He creates on the field. And... Just by the first three games, you can just see that he's just been phenomenal. Yeah, that's hard to argue with. Sereno, do you have a similar opinion or do you have someone else? Well, for performers, obviously, Jorginho does things that you have to really look and maybe be a little bit more well-versed in you know, tactics and, and you know, watching football to notice. But yeah, Jorginho, by far, in my opinion... He's been Mancini's most capped player. The fact that he wasn't capped by Ventura for the World Cup qualifiers is criminal. I think Ventura should be jailed for that, to be honest. But looking on to, you know, brighter and better things. Yeah, Jorginho does the things that you you don't notice. But if you really look, Italy can't function without him. And you saw it even, even when Mancini rotated the squad. He kept Jorginho on there because really and truly, the style of play that Italy's trying to play it doesn't work without a player like Jorginho. He gives the outs. Like, you know, he's very uh, well-positioned off the ball to give, you know, players a pass. And his vision is amazing. And I think his pass completion rate is like the mid-90s, which is crazy. He covers the most field. Like, he distance covered in a game. Like, it's insane. Like, when you see those post-match stats, it's like, wow. Like, it just comes right off of the game sheet. Like, holy crap, like, Jorginho did all of this in this game. Like... And you don't even notice it. Like, if you're just watching the game, you can't really pick it up. But then, you know, if you watch it again, you'd be like, oh, wow, Jorginho is so smart to be there. Oh, that was a good pass. Or Fundamentally, the Italian system does not work without Jorginho. Performance-wise, I will shout out a few other players. I think uh, Spinazzola had a great group stage. Uh, So did Locatelli. Locatelli was amazing, especially against Switzerland. But stepping in, uh, filling in for... Verratti was, you know, that those are big shoes to fill, and I think he did a great job. And and then also Immobile finally, you know, scoring goals for Italy was great. But yeah, to single one player definitely in terms of the kind of football Italy's trying to play, Giorgino 100% would be their most important player, I would say. Yeah, I think it's unanimous here. I, I'm going to go with Giorgino as well. And Sereno, you mentioned a couple of guys that I was going to shout out as well. And I think, again, going back to that rotation that Mancini did for the third match, that's what makes it a bit more difficult to do this assessment because Spinazzola won the star of the match against Turkey and he was very good again in the Switzerland match, though not as involved, but didn't play against Wales. Likewise, Locatelli won the star of the match in the Switzerland game and he was good against Turkey as well, but also didn't play against Wales. Chiesa was the star of the match against Wales, but he only played 30 minutes combined between the other two matches, so it's hard to give a guy, you know, the the best player of the group for only playing in, in one match, and you can probably say the same thing about Verratti, who arguably was, you know, maybe a 1B in terms of the star of that match. The only players that played in all three matches were Donnarumma, Bonucci, and Jorginho, and we had little to do defensively, so it's can't really give it to Donnarumma or Bonucci. They were good, but didn't have much to do. So that's why I have to give it to Jorginho as well, just because he played all but 15 minutes in the group stage. And even though he maybe didn't blow us away, or as you guys, as Sereno put, you almost have to go out of your way to pay attention to him or else you might miss the quality that he has. But he was very, very good in the group stage. You mentioned Chiro Immobile, who also deserves a shout that was a big talking point heading into this tournament. The big concern with this Italy squad was that we didn't have a, a true number nine or a, a big number nine or a sort of a star number nine. 
neither Immobile nor Bellotti had really produced a whole lot on the big stage. And I say on the big stage because Immobile has actually done very well in the qualification matches and in the Nations League, but in major tournament finals, he hasn't scored yet or hadn't, at least heading into this tournament. I think he played in the 2014 World Cup and in the, the 2016 Euros, and of course we didn't qualify for the finals of the 2018 World Cup. So Sereno, is it safe to say that Immobile has put his doubters to rest now? Kind of, yeah. Like, he was my number one uh, X factor. Like, if Immobile or, you know, the, any number nine uh, in this system could actually figure out how to score goals, like, when it mattered, then in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, Italy's got a complete team. Because that was really their main, uh, in my opinion, their main weakness coming into the tournament was if your strikers aren't scoring, you're going to have a trouble beating big teams, right? You need that threat up top. I think he's probably silenced some, but... You know, as the tournament goes on and as the games get tighter, you're playing better teams. Immobile could have scored maybe three or four more goals during these three group stage games. You have to see if he's going to be more clinical because when the games get tighter, you know, the space gets tighter, you're playing bigger opposition, better defenders. That's when it's going to matter the most. And that's when you need your striker to pounce on opportunities and be clinical. So you need a clinical finish, uh, you know, we can't be missing chances to the degree that we're missing chances uh, against Turkey and Switzerland and even Wales. I think Italy could have scored way more goals. But again, sometimes in the final third, they're lacking that finish. So he's silenced some and or he's at least, you know, keeping keeping some at bay for now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we just have to see if he can produce or him or Bellotti can produce against tougher opposition into the knockout stage. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. He scored two goals and got an assist in those first two matches, so it's hard to fault the guy, but he did miss quite a few big opportunities as well. Karm, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Do you think Immobile exceeded expectations so far in the tournament? Exceeded expectations? Yeah, you know what? I'd say probably. He definitely exceeded my expectations, to be honest with you. Um, Going into this tournament, I wasn't as confident in Immobile being the starting striker. Just performance-wise, just based off how he is historically when we play against, like Serrano said, against tougher oppositions, we need a striker that is more clinical on the ball. But I think what we've seen from Immobile so far, he's starting to get that form back and he's coming off a season with Lazio where I believe he scored 20 goals in 35 matches or something like that. So to say he's not clinical and calling on my own faults here uh, he is he and he can be when he starts to get his form and you can start seeing it that when the team starts playing to him and starts feeding him and giving him those opportunities immobile takes his chances and he can really hurt the opposition by being clinical and finishing well but then again you start looking at the other alternatives well who else were we going to take and start in this tournament uh moise keen Keen, very young still. He had 13 or 14 goals, something like that, in the gun. Chicho Caputo, he had, I think, 11 goals in Serie A with Sassuolo. So given the talents that we had at the striker position, there wasn't a big pool to choose from. And out of this pool, Immobile is still by far the best one. Do we have to see if he has more left to give? I think he still has more left to give. And the beauty of Immobile's play is not only that we don't even need him to be clinical at times, but Immobile also works really well by creating space in behind him for, let's say, Berardi or Chiesa, whoever it is playing on that wing, to get in behind. So Insigne can pick out one or the other pass. He can either pick out the pass to Immobile or Immobile draws in the center backs and he can pick out a pass to Berardi or Chiesa, whoever's playing on that side. So... I think there's still much more left to see from Immobile, and I want to see him do well. In fact, if Immobile doesn't do well, we're going to be hard-pressed to really find a lot of opportunities in the attacking half to create goal opportunities. Not to say that I don't believe in Verratti, Insigne, and Chiesa or Berardi to create the opportunities themselves, but we still need that contribution from our striker either to create space or to finish off the opportunities that we do have. No, that's a great point, and it was one that I was going to make as well, that it's easy to judge strikers, and obviously they should be judged based on goals and goal contributions, which he has. Even if he has missed chances, he's still contributed. But 
we use our number nines very differently on this team. They drop a lot deeper. You see our midfielders and even our fullbacks. Like I see Di Lorenzo doing it all the time, specifically looking for Immobile to drop deep. I was on the Calcio Connection podcast before the tournament started, and one of the things we talked about was that we would need to get production from our wingers and our midfielders because that's how Mancini sets up to play. And and we did see that production from those other players. We saw Insigne score in the first game. We saw Locatelli score, Doppietta in the second. Verardi was involved in both of the goals in the Switzerland game. And Verratti and Piscina, the two midfielders, combined on the goal in the Wales game. So we don't necessarily need to get goals from our strikers as long as we're getting that production from the other players on the team. I want to close the pod with a quick discussion on the Austria match. And I don't want to get too much into the preview of the Austria match because, to be honest, I haven't watched a whole lot of them play. And I think you guys have probably watched them play more than I have. But I do want to talk about our starting 11. And while I think most of it is pretty much set in stone, there are a couple of positions that are potentially up for grabs. Maybe we can start with the easier one first, though maybe you might disagree whether it's easy or not. We saw Keza win the star of the match in the Wales game, but Berardi was very good in the first two matches. So I'm curious, Sereno, do you think Keza did enough in that Wales match to steal the starting role from Berardi, or do you think Mancini goes back to Berardi? It's difficult. Before the first game, I was... Kind of surprised to see Berardi starting on the wing, but, you know, then I believe he scored the first game where he at least set up that own goal that Turkey ended up putting in. He did impress me a little bit in the first game, but definitely in the second game impressed me a lot more. He linked up very well with Locatelli, obviously their teammates on uh, Sassuolo, so they linked up very, very well. So obviously that seems like that could be contributing to Mancini's decision to be playing uh, Berardi, but... Part of me feels like I'd like to see how a front line of Insigne, Immobile, and Chiesa would play because Chiesa plays really well on that right side and he is a very dynamic player. He's pacey, he takes on defenders, and I feel like he could create even more space for an Insigne, for Immobile to go behind the defense. He kind of creates mayhem. That's the kind of player that Chiesa is. He'll dribble that ball right into the box and he creates mayhem for defenders. So I like that about him. And I feel like you never want to change a winning lineup, but I feel like against Austria, obviously, we talked about stronger opposition. I feel like against an Austria, I don't think it would hurt them to try to start maybe Keza on the right side with uh, Immobile and Insigne just to kind of have a look at how that goes. And, you know, if it's terrible, then maybe you switch it up at halftime. But I'd really like to see what Keza could do uh, on that front line uh, with Insigne and Immobile because... For Juve this season, he was their best player by a mile. He was the only player that was there every game, and he made that team tick. And obviously, in the one game that he started, or I believe he played the whole game, he was the player of the match. And that's because, like I said, he's a brave player that takes on defenders, and and he has a lot of pace, and he's a good dribbler. He has a good shot, too. So I feel like it wouldn't hurt to start him uh, against Austria at least for the half, see how it goes. If it goes really well, you keep them on. And if anything, you can always change it up at halftime. Yeah, it's a very similar problem to the one that we have with Napoli, right? Where we have two excellent right wingers and they have two very different styles. So that's a good problem to have because regardless of who you start, you can assess and see if it's working, if it's not working. If it is working, we just stick with it. And if it's not, you have a guy that you can change it up with and bring off the bench. What do you think, Carmen? Would you go Chiesa or would you go Berardi? I always operate under the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing. So we saw the front line with Insigne, Immobile, and Berardi, and it worked for two matches. They scored six goals using that front line. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think you start off with Berardi. And that's not to say that Chiesa isn't good enough to start. Like you said, it's a good problem that we have this, that we're even talking about this, because we have two very good wingers on that side, much like we said about Napoli, where we have Lozano, who causes that mayhem, causes that ruckus in the penalty box. He'll sprint that defenders. He'll draw fouls. He'll do stuff like that. That'd be comparable to what Chiesa plays, where he's a very dynamic player, like Sedano said. Very pacey. On the ball, you know, he 
He does have some trouble a little bit with control on the ball, but, you know, he makes up with that with pace and spatial recognition and attacking IQ. And then we have the other side where we have Berardi, who's a little bit more of a technical player. He's still very pacey. He can still cause that ruckus on that right side, but he likes to keep calm a bit more. He likes to stay more on the ball. He likes to work more with his either overlapping fullback or with the central midfielder pushing up, which in that game was Locatelli, which is really nice because of the Sassuolo connection there. But you see that Berardi is more of a technical player on the ball rather than Chiesa being that more high-intensity, high-impact sort of player. But going into this game, knowing that we're going up against Austria and knowing that on that side, they're going to be going up against David Alaba, most likely playing left back. David Alaba is the jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He plays wherever he plays on the field or Austria puts him. But most likely he'll be playing on that left side. And I think you start off the game with Berardi and having Alaba focused on Berardi that match with, I hope, Honestly, Di Lorenzo starting again because he's been working very well on that system on that right side with uh, whoever was playing. That gives Alaba a lot to think about and can honestly start to tire him out through the game. And then, you know, if it doesn't work at halftime, then you can make the change. But if it works, then you keep on going. And throughout the game, you start wearing Alaba down even more. You start wearing down their best player a little bit more, chipping away at him. And then at the 65th, 70th minute, you throw on the Tasmanian Devil. You throw on Chiesa. And that's really going to start to mess with Alaba on that left side. And you're really going to start seeing spaces open up even more. So even up until that point, if we score a goal, if we don't score a goal, there's going to be a point where they're going to start breaking on that back line because they're just so skilled. Our front line is just so skilled all the way through, especially on that right side. So that's why I'm saying you should start with Berardi because, you know, more technical player. He really causes problems for the back line because he also has a very high-quality attacking IQ. He makes those runs in behind that Insignia likes where he puts that curling ball into the back post for the defenders to run onto. He also opens up a lot of space. He basically hugs the touchline Berardi when he plays, really stretching out the opposition defense. And then after a while, if it works, keep on going and then throw on Chiesa for the nail in the coffin. Or you make the switch at halftime. Either way, you can't go wrong. Yeah, I have a feeling that's the approach that Mancini is going to take. I think we're going to see a similar squad to what we saw in the first two matches. And, and part of that is also just the rest factor. And I think while, again, he wanted to get that camaraderie and giving everybody playing time, especially being someone who didn't play much or possibly even at all, even though he was called up, Mancini was to the national team. I think there was also the purpose of giving players a rest there. We'll see what happens. I agree. We probably see both of them feature and it doesn't really matter which one starts. Let's close with the tough one, which is the question that all Italy fans are debating right now, which is who do you start between Locatelli and Verratti? Carmela, you go first on this one. That's a real tough one. And I'm going to be a hypocrite right now. I know I said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'll make an exception on this one. Fix it. Put Verratti in the midfield. Like, Don't get me wrong. Locatelli's been fantastic. And he's been arguably one of our best players so far in the group stage matches. But just seeing Verratti, he's such a little magician when he's on the ball. He just works so well on and off the ball. And when he has the ball, it's very hard to get it off of him. It's almost impossible to get it off of him. He'll dance around three, four defenders and make an outlook pass to his front line and break through the lines that easily. And just the way Italy's been playing in the midfield, that midfield dynamic where you have Jorginho, who's that calm Regita player distributing the ball, slowing down the game or picking up the pace of the game, really just controlling how they're going to be playing on the attack. Then you have Barella, who's that very attack-minded, get-into-the-box, draw-defenders-in sort of player. And then finally, you have that finishing touch of Verratti, who's not quite a box-to-box, -box, and he's not quite a Metzala sort of player. He's like that in-between sort of thing where he's very good on the ball, he's very good at distributing, but he's also very good in the attacking phases and also, while he's at it, very good at recovering the ball. He presses very well, and he's a pretty good tackler on the ball. So just having that midfield dynamic where basically 
to my opinion, you have the three perfect midfielders to control the game. You have the Regista, you have the attacking box-to-box, and you have that role in between where they can all work together in harmony to really control that match. Now, to say that Locatelli didn't do it, Locatelli did it, but you can obviously tell that Locatelli for Sassuolo is playing more of that defensive midfielder role, much like Jorginho would be playing. And having both of them on the ball, you saw when Italy was playing in the first two group stage matches, they'd start off in a 4-3-3, but almost transition into a 4-2-3-1 sort of look, where Barella was pushing really high, and Locatelli and Jorginho were basically uh, in a double pivot controlling the midfield and it worked well and that's what i'd like to see about him is that we have that fluidity where we can play in that classic 4-3-3 having the box-to-box and the mezzala playing on either side of the play keeping the shape of the 4-3 or when you're putting on someone like locatelli where you have that 4-2-3-1 sort of shape in the attack but having said all that i just think that Verratti is just so skilled as a player he fits just so naturally i believe in that midfield alongside those two players, that it's very hard to keep him out of that squad. That's a pretty compelling case for Verratti. Sereno, do you agree? Do you have anything to add? I agree 100%. Verratti is arguably one of our most skillful, most talented players. Obviously, he came into the tournament hurt, but I believe that if Italy want to make some noise in this tournament. And mind you, Locatelli's a great player. He's still very young. I believe he's 22 years old. But you need Verratti to be getting into the groove. And he looked like he was pretty fit in that Wheels game. But, you know, you want to get him going against Austria. And then hopefully against bigger opposition, you know, he's more well-oiled and and ready for those games. Because I'm not saying that Locatelli's not a great player. I think Locatelli has potential to, who knows, he could be better than Verratti maybe one day. But obviously Verratti's played in Champions League finals. He's played big matches in uh, for PSG. So, and mind you, he's, he is getting older and he hasn't really played in too many international tournaments for Italy. So I feel like that's your guy. Like you have to go with Verratti uh, going forward unless obviously if he's not fit or, or maybe if he's not looking good during a game. And it's not a bad problem to have to have a few interchangeable pieces in that midfield. Uh, like, say if Verratti can't go for whatever reason, he's not fit. It's good that we don't have such a gap in quality. Like, they're both very capable in that position to come in and perform well for Italy. So, definitely, if Verratti is fit, you start Verratti, 100%, in my opinion. You touched on a couple of points I was going to make as well. You mentioned the injury. He was so good in this match, and this was his first action in seven weeks, I believe. And he did that with what was, I get these are all world-class players are obviously called up to the national team, but he did that effectively with our B team, right? And you mentioned the experience in the Champions League. Neither of them really have experience on the international stage because Verratti has unfortunately been hurt all the time. But as you said, he does have that experience playing in the Champions League. So he knows what it's like to play in big tournaments with that kind of pressure. And Locatelli is a bit of an unknown in in that regard. I think he has a great head on his shoulders, but you do sense that you go with the experienced guy there. I will say the one argument that makes me at least question whether Locatelli plays is that Sassuolo connection and the chemistry that he has with Berardi and we saw that on full display in the Switzerland game. I think we saw that. I can't remember which qualification match where they, I believe they combined for a goal or it might have been Caputo actually in that one. That makes me question a little bit, but I do think that we will see Verratti get the playing time. And I think he was the one player that was rotated in to actually give him a prep game for what's to come. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. That game is on Saturday at 3 p.m. We'll wrap it up there. I want to thank both of our guests for coming on the pod. Carm, before I let you go, where can the listeners find you and the club? Yeah, so for the club's social media, we have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, and a TikTok page, if you guys have TikTok. The Twitter is at NapoliClubTO. Um, this is our new account. Unfortunately, our last account was suspended for a various reasons, but this is our new account. We're up and running. It's NapoliClubTO on Twitter. On Instagram, it's just the name Napoli Club Toronto. And uh, TikTok page is also Napoli Club Toronto. We also have a website. It's NapoliClubToronto.com, which soon enough, there will be merchandise up for sale there. So 
keep an eye on that. That will be out in July. And any support to the club, all the money goes back into the club for future events that we will be hosting, of course, after the pandemic or after the lockdown, uh, willing. And yeah, any support to the club, just hit us up. We have uh, our social media, our Gmail accounts. Uh, you can come visit us whenever we have our locations open again. Any support is greatly appreciated from anyone in the GTA. And if you're visiting Toronto from abroad, that is more than welcome as well. Excellent. Sereno, thank you as well for coming on. Where can the listeners find you? Obviously, the club, uh, at the same handles that Carmine just said, but you can find me on Twitter. My Well, that's where I'm most active talking about soccer and Napoli-related tweets and things like that. And my, my handle on uh, Twitter is at sere underscore green olive. And green olive because my last name is Verdoliva, so obviously Verdoliva in English is green olive. So I made that handle a, a long time ago, so don't judge me. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty clever. <laughs> That's... See me rant about happily related soccer related things. I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter. That's the the main uh, uh, social media outlet that I use. Definitely follow Carmen Sereno and follow the club as well. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti five. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'm hoping to be back in a couple of days to cover the latest news and how our boys have fared at the Euro. So not just the Italian players, but all Napoli players that are on international duty. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Network.